0: Hello wonderful people. Welcome to the Birmingham Literature Festival Presents podcast. I am Casey Bailey, former Birmingham Poet Laureate, and I was delighted to be one of the guest curators for the 2022 Birmingham Literature Festival. For the next few weeks, we're going to bring you some highlights from last year's festival for you to enjoy whenever you'd like. You can subscribe to this podcast feed and get the new episodes as soon as they're available. This week, We're joined by Lucy Hanna from Untold Stories and Afghan poet Pawana Fayaz, who talked to festival team member Olivia Chapman. Lucy and Pawana worked on My Pen is the Wing of a Bird, a new collection of short stories written by Afghan women before and after the brutal resurgence of the Taliban in August 2021.
1: Hello, I'm Liv, I'm part of the festival team. When we started programming this festival, one of the first books to really jump out at us when we started having conversations with publishers was this one, My Pen is the Wing of a Bird. Um, And I will let Lucy and Pawana explain much more about how this book came together. But as someone who has worked in book festivals for about 15 years, it's very unusual to find a book which is so compelling and which tells such moving stories with such grace and simplicity. So we were very enthusiastic to be able to do this event. So I'm Genuinely delighted to be able to speak to Pawana Fayaz, who's closest to me, and Lucy Hanna. Pawana, I will come to you in just a minute, but Lucy, maybe if you could introduce yourself and explain how this book was created.
2: Yes, hello, thank you for coming. I am the founder and director of Untold Narratives, whose launch project was a project called Write Afghanistan. Uh, This came about, and this is one of the outputs, if you like, from, from the project. Back in 2017, I was working in Kabul with a team of scriptwriters on the long-running soap opera there called New Home, New Life. Some of you may be familiar with it if you listen to um, the Afghan service, I think. Isn't it? And during conversations with the team, I was talking about, with them about what happens to their prose fiction. So clearly, these were writers who like writing scripts and stories, Uh, long-running storylines. And the women in particular said that it was impossible to get their prose fiction published on the whole. In some cases, it was possible. Mostly, it was very challenging because locally, they would have to pay a publisher or people just didn't take them seriously. And to have their work published in translation was a pipe dream. And so myself and Parand, who's a pen name in this book, and Sharifa Passoon, to the writers we decided well let's try and raise some money and see if we can set up a way that women writers across the country could have editorial support and develop their craft as writers which wasn't available to them and also to be published more easily locally and in translation internationally and in 2019 We did raise some money to to start it off and we put out an open call and the funder at the time said to me, well, you'll probably get about 20 submissions because, you know, we don't think there's much in it. And we got 120 from women, um, mostly in metropolitan areas. In 2021, we put out our second open call and we got more than 300 submissions. And it really, the rest is literally history. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: so you've got 18 writers who are part of this, is that correct? So 18 of those are featured in the anthology, Are featured yes. in the anthology, and we will hear directly from a couple of them via a video in just a few minutes. But Pawan, I wonder if maybe by way of introduction you could explain how you came to be involved in this book and your connection to the, the stories in this book.
3: Perfect. Okay. Hello everyone, I am Pawan Fayez, I am a medieval Persian literature scholar at Cambridge University, but I'm also a poet and one of the translators of this great uh, collection of stories. Originally from Kabul, Afghanistan, I lived in Kabul until August 2018. I used to visit home every summer. But sadly, starting, you know, lately in 2017 or so, the situation of Afghanistan was becoming worse and I was advised not to visit home and, and to just stay abroad and pursue scholarship and write my poetry and everything. So I couldn't go home. And I received an email from Lucy saying if I was interested in this project and that uh, reading stories in Persian and helping with translating them into English. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was visiting home through the stories. And for me, that become a project that I got involved with, with my soul. And also, obviously, because each story is such a Vivid image of Kabul—it just captured my imagination, and I had to, you know, go over them and working through the stories. It it just, you know, felt like I was visiting home. So yeah, that's how I came to be involved, knowing that this was piece of my home country, and I I, I felt like the writers were amazing women and talented writers that they needed their stories needed to be known to the world. So I was involved right away. And at the same time, I was writing my poetry book, 40 Names, and putting all your creative skills in the basket to do something for your country outside
1: Afghanistan. So yeah, that's how I became involved with this project. Thank you. So before we hear from uh, one of the writers, um, just so that we know how this came about, these stories are Mm -hmm. fiction, Some of them are quite kind of daily life, but some of them are much more fantasy, aren't they? Yes. I mean,
2: this was a a traditional, as it were, writer development program without any themes put upon writers involved. And the submissions that we received were, I mean, we couldn't work with hundreds of writers. So a team of Afghan readers selected the group of about, a core group of about 25 to 30 who we worked with continuously The themes that came in were very like uh, similar to those in the book. Actually, often inspired, clearly inspired often by real life, but fiction. And the writers were were determined that that this is fiction. Uh, One of the writers, Masuma uh, Kazari, who submitted a story called "The Cow," which was a very simple parable. Really, now has two pieces in here that are much more ambitious. So. In a way, it was interesting how writers found their stride and developed through the process, as, as you would expect, but that was really encouraging to us that people were using it to really find their voice in a genuine way. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of it is, is, it is they are all set in Afghanistan and we were talking earlier about whether in the next volume, if we were lucky enough to, to have one, how many of the writers would actually start setting pieces elsewhere, and really spreading their wings literally.
1: And they were writing in their mother tongues, which for the most part was Pashto and
2: Dari. Yes, the two most dominant languages, local languages in Afghanistan. And a team of four translators worked with us, Hawana being one of them. And we worked very closely. Writer, editor, translator, worked in a truly collaborative way through the process, which is actually quite unusual.
1: So I wonder if we can hear from Batul, who is one of the writers. Uh, she will be speaking in Dari with subtitles. In the name of God,
4: I am Afghanistan. I am very happy that in this I am I am موزلاتی است که جامعه افغانستان با اون گریبانگیر است. موضوعی که جزء واقعیت های افغانستان است و ما نمیتونیم آن را امکار بکنیم، وجود هایی است که در افغانستان حضور دارد. و موضوع داستانی ما هم در باره همین هست. اون جوانی که دوچار یک خفقان و شروعاتی بسیار سختی میشه و مجبور هست به خاطر اینکه خود واقعی خودش را داشته باشه با یک سری از کسانی که در برابر از او صد میشن و از مشکل درست میکنن و با اونها درگیر بشه. من در این داستان روبروی از این نوجوان پیدر از قرار دادم که پدر در حقیقت نمادی از حاکمیت سرنت ها و مذهب در افغانستان هست که به شکل افراتی به این اقلیدت های جنسی نگاه میکنند و در اونها قضاوت میکنند. وقتی که قهرمان داستان من فضای اون خانه را ترک میکنند به نوعی با بشوادی بسیار بدی، فضای خانه رو رها میکنه شما اگر داستان را می بینید که پایان داستان رو به خانه میبینید که پایانی داستان پایانی گنگی است یعنی هیچ چیز شاخصه‌ای برای از اون من تعریف نمیکنم این یک واقعیت تلخی است یعنی هنوز هم سرنوشتی اقلیت‌های جنسی ما در افغانستان نامعلوم هست. ما از اونها برای ما نمیتونیم یک پلانی بسیار مشخص یک پلانی که اونها را در امنیت قرار بده برای اونها داشته باشیم بعد از اغوست، وقتی که طالبان به افغانستان برگشتن، موضوعهای بسیاری از داستانهای من سب و سیاهش متفاوت شد بود. و همیشه توی داستانهایم و در جهانی که می نوشتم سعی میکردم خالق اونید باشم، سعی میکردم یک چشفندازی روشنی مثل فردا زن زنی افغانستانی داشته باشد. ولی متاسفانه بعد از اگوست داستان‌های من هم مثل بسیاری از زنانی که درباره افغانستان بینرشتند به که یه اصول امیدی حرکت کرد و غیر از اینم من نمیتونم چیز دیگهی بنویسم هر هرچقدر تلاش می‌کنم یا جهان دیگهی را هم ترسیب میکنم یا حتی کچکترین روزنی امید را هم در قصه های اخیر خودم که دارم نویسم بیارم متاسفم نمیتونم و غیر از اینم به یک نوعی دوچار یعقود فریبی حتی نسل به خودم نسبت به مخاطب خودم میشم چون شرایطی که فعلا با دست پنجره زنان افغانستان و مردم افغانستان با اون هل میکنن همین هست من خیلی خوشحال هستم که در این مجموعه کنار داستان میسان زن افغانستان هستم و تجربه بسیار خوب و شیرینی برای من بود به خاطر اینکه در این مجموعه ما نویسندگانی با اقوام متفاوت و بالاخر از فضاهای مختلف هستیم ولی همه با هم دیگه با هر مسیر متفاوتی که آمدیم هدف نهایی ما یکی است. و نویشتن برای زن هست برای اینکه که نشان بدیم زن هنوز هست و همچنان می تواند اعلان حضور بکنه و موجودیت خودش عالمیت خودش را از طریق نوشتن برای تمام جهانیان قیام آور بشه برای بسیار یک اتفاق خوشایند و بسیار خوبی بود خیلی خوشحال هستیم که در کنار از این عزیزان قرار گرفتم و توانستم از طریق این تیم و از طریق این انتشارات و این دوستان به جهان دیگری هم بیایم و بالشته های خودمان ب مخاطبین دیگری رو هم در دنیای دیگر پیدا کنیم. میوارم که بتیم این ارتباط ها را ادامه بدیم و بتوانیم روزی یک جهان بسیار خوب و آرامی را as
1: Afghanistan, it's quite heartbreaking to hear her say that herself, isn't it? The not being able to write stories of hope. Um, we should say that was last, almost 2021,
2: and that video was made in February this year.
1: And we should also say that Batul is no longer in Afghanistan. She, I think she recorded that from Italy, is that correct? Yes,
2: she's in initially, yes. Yeah.
1: So... So she's one of the contributors, and her story is in the book. And Pawana, if you're happy to, I'd love for you to read some of that. Absolutely. So the story I'm about to read is by Batul Haidari, and the title is,
3: I Do Not Have the Flying Wings. It's really a story about a young boy who comes of age and secretly hopes that he can be seen and desired and loved like a woman. I place the mirror against the case, and focus it on the roundness of my face. I pull the little stick from the coal box and run it over my eyelids, turning them dark. Inside the box, there is also a lipstick with no lid, turquoise in color, around the edges, as if it were withering. I apply a little to my thin lips, and then, with the tip of my finger, spread the color around. I see my mother's wine-colored braid with its soft blue beading. I put it on. Then I put on her white shawl with its golden edges, which she has so nicely folded away. It spreads softly around my shoulders. The tickling feeling, which had worn want- a little, returns to my body. I look in the mirror and I'm a beautiful young woman. I club my hands together and then I start on my foot, leaping and circling. I dance, my hands resting on my waist, I stop, the ground softly. I dance on the tip of my toes with grace and delicacy, just like any other girl. I feel as if all boys around kneeling in a circle around me, clapping for me as I make the other girls jealous. Whenever I stomp my feet on the ground, the dust rises up in the faces of the smiling boys, and I feel shy. As I dance, I look upwards, I see the sky, and I see the clouds in blue and white. The hem of the shawl touches my face and the sweat feels warmer around my body. I sense the sound of tambour in my ears, the sound for which young fingers would give their lives. I dance as if I have been liberated from my body. Despite the heat of my skin, my liberty keeps me cool. I admire my own beauty. I open my thin lips, ready to sing out the poem that has always rested in my throat. It is at this precise moment that I feel someone watching me. I turn around and my father shouts my name. I pull the shawl from my head and toss it away. I feel heavy. The colors have gone, the smells are different. His eyes have turned red, bright red and smoky. He seems suddenly to have aged. He's pale, furious.
2: Thank you.
1: So we'll come to a video of uh, another contributor in just a couple of minutes, but Purwana, I wonder if maybe you can talk a little bit about that scene that you've just read and uh, the universality of it. That could have been set, obviously, anywhere, but the power of this book for me was that those scenes that are universal are set in your home country. Yeah,
3: definitely. Well, that's another thing. This story begins with um, this young boy finding himself in this very old house And then there is an underground, and then there is a room in there. And he walks in there, the stairs are withering, and he finds himself in, in the presence of a, you know... Things that have remained from historical moments, like a Soviet Union case is sitting there and he opens them up. In this sense of, you know, I, I was brought up in a home uh, where there were Russian objects all around, right? This sense of like, we have been conquered before, we have had things coming in the country, and they represent some sort of a different historical moment. And this story is set in a, in a space that's familiar for me. You know, the, the staircases that were built by Hint and the father figure or the man in the, in the family would, every winter, they try to piece together in order for it to stand for the rest of the winter. So that, that sense of home coming into universality, that makes me feel more connected because as a writer from Afghanistan, being educated in America and then coming to the UK, I feel part of both worlds. I come from a place called Kabul, even Kabul, a very small area, you know, with a lot of um, things that comes from. Uh, the past that is very really not vivid for me, but for my parents are. You know, we've gone through so many different historical moments, different sort of war and everything, and it has impacted my family in the same. And those spaces really, you know, contain those memories. And and for me to, visit, to be able to visit that and come back in a place like Cambridge, say, to put them in, in context and in juxtaposition, that gives me a sense of belonging to the both worlds, and this poems really does that for me, and this this type of stories, obviously. And uh, I don't know this this um, as you said, this can be set um, anywhere in America, in a small town, but it's that Afghan figure in it. I think that Afghan side of the story, the mother folding. Neatly, the shawls that she inherited from the the, the mother figure or the, what the husband giving her as the first token of their uh, marriage life; those little things are very familiar for me. I was brought up in in, in a household where everything had to be folded and and bundled together and put in the very you know safe ca- case where you could carry with you anywhere you go. I we we became refugees when I was very young and uh, and my parents the first thing they took but them were three very old iron uh, cases with them that it went to Pakistan with us in 2005 and we came back to Kabul, brought it back with us. And obviously after last August, what happened in Afghanistan after the country fell back to, to the Taliban, they left everything behind. They couldn't carry those things. You know, it's just like this story for me is a revisiting of those moments that for a bit we thought we were free, you know. We It was a post-war moment for us to make sense of spaces, make. Sense sense of objects and connection to our stories and sense of being but you know it feels like we're losing it but you know stories as such really doesn't only represent the place but the emotions and the things that all everything that already really feels so nostalgic for me.
1: So yeah, I'm seeing both walls in stories like mm. this, yeah. and it's the it's the detail. It's absolutely the detail Details. that gives you that insight into yeah. that daily life, doesn't yes. it? Like the folding of the shawls that you've just said exactly.
3: And it's also now one of the other stories about uh, turn on the condition. It's a young man traveling bet- in in Kabul city, taking the bus, and uh, if you're from Afghanistan or even if you're a visitor, if you've ever been to Kabul, if you read that that story, you can imagine the city, that chaos, but at the same time, that hope that existed there. It's just, yeah, the details and the emotions even, you know, what kind of emotions certain things in the city really, you know, gave you kind of, uh, the triggered some sort of a memory, fear or uh, emotions. It's just a mixture of things that made it possible. (coughs) For anyone like me to feel that this are like, even though this is fiction, there's so much truth in them. There's Mm. so much of the reality that captured in the stories. It's just for me, at least,
5: it's it's to be remembered forever.
1: Yeah, makes them very powerful. I wonder if we could hear from Marie, please. Hello, everyone.
5: I am Marie, and talking with you from Deutschland. So apparently, the launching of the book is the happiest news I heard after leaving the Kabul. I left Kabul a month after uh, the Taliban took over. So uh, abandon my homeland, abandon my Kabul, uh, was the hardest decision I ever made in my entire life because I had just one child to stay with my family and obey the rule of the Taliban or leave uh, Kabul in order to save my future. So. So I choose myself over my family and uh, I really feel bad about my decision because it uh, it gives me that feeling or it makes me f- to feel awkward and selfish. And it really hurt. and uh, I never thought such hard days uh, come to me. Uh, but in this circumstance, the only thing that makes me hopeful is the launching event of the book. Uh, about my story in the book, the Black Crown of the Winter, it is my first fiction that I inspired from the uh, from a daily life of uh, woman. Uh, there are some tiny issue in every woman's uh, life which never seen as a serious issue and always remain um, answered. So this story, uh, so this story is about a two. Uh, our life of a woman in Kabul that is struggling, that kind of is struggling to survive in the society. And this story, I wanted to show, I wanted to share that in this short period of time, a woman faced a lot of problems in the society and no one cared about it. Uh, because the society believes there are more important things in life compared to the problem of the woman. So this story is uh, kind of not just about Afghan women, it is a story of every woman around the world which are not allowed to talk and their problem has not seemed as important and always their problem, their issue, prioritized as not important things. So, uh, so I hope this story could help the woman to talk, uh, become a small spark or small, small light to their, uh, to their life. Uh, you know, the publishing is dedicated to a certain category of writer. So there is a zero chance for new writer to publish their pieces. So as always, the new writer's fictions remains untold and die under uh, the dust because there was not any supporter for, uh, for them. Uh, but untold team give us a tool uh, to raise our voice. To write about uncover a layer of Afghanistan and to talk with the world by translating our story to English and I am really happy to see that my first fiction has been published in English in other hand I am more happy I'm more happy to be a member of this community you know working with a group of uh, writers from different locations of Afghanistan with different experience with different perspectives and uh, with uh, the different thought it's a rare opportunity anyone can get, and I am so proud to be a member of this community. It is a big achievement, it is it is really great, and I'm happy that I'm a member of this community and uh, helping others to this path. So uh, back to Afghanistan, I remember the day Taliban took over Kabul. All of the members were frustrated and, pa- and panicked and disappointed. Uh, so, we were uh, in WhatsApp group, we were texting to each other and share our fears and even we, even we cried behind the phone because of the situation. So, uh, so for me, it was, it was some, some kind of a unique experience. It was a unique experience for me because I saw potential in this group that this group helped each other. Mm, to survive in the hardest time of their life. So I think publishing uh, the book is not the end, but the starting point for each of us, especially in such situations where women needs support more than ever.
1: So Lucy, the, yes. after that video, I'm going to ask you a little bit about the process of bringing the writers together, which you didn't do in person. It was all done online. But obviously, because this project started in 2019, quite a big chunk of this project would, would have had to have been online anyway because of COVID lockdown. So she talks a lot about the community of writers that was created by this project. And I know they're all still in touch and, and, and quite frequently communicating. Um, but can you talk to us a little bit about how the book actually was, how, how you worked, how Untold Project worked with the writers individually, but then kind of brought them together as well? Looking back on it now, I can't quite believe, I can't quite work
2: out how it it happened. But so basically, we worked across, we're working across three languages, across three time zones, because our editor was in Sri Lanka, and over nearly sort of two years, really. And as you say, COVID was there. I mean, Afghanistan is no stranger to lockdowns, as, as you know, because the security situation is such. So we wouldn't have been able to go there anyway, probably. So we devised a way of working, as I said before, editor, writer, translator, via WhatsApp calls, intensively, draft by draft, feedback, feedback, as you would do here or anywhere else, but you'd probably be in the same room. And so this went on. We occasionally, we we also had regular group meetings Also via WhatsApp. The reason it was WhatsApp is because most of these writers don't have laptops, or didn't have actually till two weeks ago, when a very kind American donor has enabled all of the group to have a laptop now. And so also data is expensive, and so mobiles is women had their own mobiles and they were writing pieces that way. Some were writing by hand, and then somebody else would get it onto the mobile. So gradually the group had a sort of it grew a cohesive feel people from were from different ethnic groups so there was a little bit of mistrust around that initially but i think because we all had a common aim which was a pipe dream at the beginning which was well let's try you never know we might be able to get an anthology or some sort of collection out of this in january 2021 i visited about a dozen publishers in london when it seemed that we might have the makings of a book they all said, no one's going to be interested in Afghan writing. You know, forget it. One, MacLehose Press, in the April of 2021, said, yes, we, we are interested in fiction in translation. You know, we'll publish it, but it don't expect it to uh, sell very many, but, but we'd like to publish it. After Kabul fell, 11 of those publishers rang me up and said, <laughs> we, you know that book you were talking about? We'd love to do that. And I luckily was able to say, well, bad luck. Uh, you could have done it so um, we were about three quarters of the way through this when Kabul fell uh, and we had to make an overnight, uh, everything changed overnight and the Taliban swept across the country as you know um, and when they retook the the, uh, capital um, we had to make some swift decisions, we had to remove all the writers from the internet so there was no trace of them um, you know we spent the previous two years promoting their work uh, <laughs> online and, and being published in places like Words Without Borders and so on the one hand we were removing all trace of the people that, that we were working with and on the other hand we had to discuss well, what what's going to happen to this the group all were absolutely determined that this should come out and that nothing should change and that we carry on and that all their names should also be used uh, in it. Um, that was a problem we, we, we had to address a little bit later. Um, so literally people were, one of our interpreter who was based in Kandahar at the time was quite a high-profile women's rights activist and we t- I mean, one time I was talking to her from the back of a van where she was being smuggled towards the border. And I said, look, really, this, this is not appropriate for you to be on this call. And she said, no, Lucy, I really want to be on this call because it's the only distraction I've got at the moment. And it's helpful. And so we had many incidents like that. Um, and we did. Everybody became more committed and, and we got all the pieces together as planned. Also, I don't know if I should mention this now, um, the writers wanted to stay connected to each other, as Marie mentioned there, while their lives were being turned upside down and share on WhatsApp happened to be. And we actually changed to a more secure messaging app um, about what they were feeling, what they were thinking, what was happening to them, whether they were trying to um, leave the country, the ups and downs. And they actually then carried on doing that for the subsequent 12 months. And we now have probably about 120,000 words of what has turned out to be a collective diary of 18 women on the front line domestically, as it were, reporting... really everything that's going on around them. And this diary was featured and excerpts from this was featured um, to mark the one year anniversary of the fall of Kabul. Um, I'll just read you, just to give you a sense of it. Um, on the 15th of August, they all have time stamps, 15th of August, 2021, 1957, Zainab says, I boil some water and add a little dishwashing liquid. I go through my notebooks and manuscripts one by one and soak them in the hot water. My father told me that the ashes of all these books cannot be hidden, but if you soak them in foamy water and then wash them like clothes, no trace of your writings will be left. Now that the Taliban are here, my words are just a pile of rubbish. That was the sort of thing that people were having to do. they also remained defiant. Um, as Mariam says here on 16th of August, my sister's classmates were told to stop writing on social media. And Batul, who you saw, says, um, they said the same to me. I said, go to hell. You can tell Batul is one of our more <laughs> defiant people. So, It's fascinating how this this developed, took on a life of its own. Uh, It's now become the basis of a children's book about the fall of Kabul, which will be out in May. Um, And we've just submitted the first draft of that and we're looking for an adult home for for the diary. But um, I should also say that now 12 out of 18 of these writers have left Afghanistan. Batul is in Italy, Marie, Germany, Um, none of them are here. No comment. Uh, they're Australia, Tajikistan, um, USA, Germany, uh, Australia, uh, Iran, UAE. And so, um, sorry, I'm sort of no, slightly losing right. track.
1: They're all, they're all very much in touch with each but other. They're still. All, but they all exist
2: as a, as a community, and, and we continue and they to support work with them each as a other, community. don't they? Very then. much so, very much so, yes. And uh, Massimo, who reached Sweden via illegal routes recently, you know, she disappeared for about three months and, and people were sort of... Suddenly she appeared on, online saying, I've just arrived in Sweden. And there was a sort of emojis like you've never seen before. So <laughs>
1: welcoming her
2: after a long, very difficult time.
1: Thank you. For um, Juana, I know obviously... Because you're the translator, and because also this is your home country, you're, you're, you've got a slightly different relationship to the stories and to the and to these women. And obviously, your um, your book of poetry is is very much inspired by your your life in mm-hmm. Afghanistan and, and and leaving Afghanistan. In a sense, you are a few steps further down the road than some of these writers who've just left in the last year or so. How do you feel reading and and hearing from them of their defiance and their hope now especially those who've been able to leave Um, but also that pull of still being partially back in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm.
3: Well it's certainly true that I've been away for almost 12 years from Kabul but I used to go every summer and uh, I've got uh, I used to have family my parents and three youngest sister and a brother youngest brother used to live in Kabul until October last year so, you know, I've always had this, you know, sense of I've always lived this true life, you know, even though I left Afghanistan, left as a kind of establishing myself as a independent woman elsewhere. I always, my siblings being there, I always felt like part of me was there, right? And so um, the sense of trying to feel that connection stronger there in order not to forget that Afghanistan can exist beyond what... What it is now, so I got to experience very similar situation with my siblings. My my sister, my oldest sister, she was twenty at that time, and she called me one of those days, and she said, "Parana, we've got your uh, diploma. I graduated from Stanford with two degrees, undergrad and masters, and I had left them home in Kabul just because that's where home is, and I had put it on the wall and to be a piece of achieving. You left me to study abroad." I completed the education and everything. So my sister calls me and says, Parana, this we are burning everything. Uh can I burn your diploma?" And it took me a second and I'm like, "Of course you can burn the diploma because I can always request Stanford to send me back another copy. It's fine. Yes, do that." And my sister's like, "Okay." And she hung up. And luckily my family got evacuated last October and they were they went to Albania. And I went to visit them. The first thing My sister hands me with the diplomas where they had hid them, and I'm like, how did you do it? Because going from Kabul, from one part of Kabul to the airport, you basically, everything had to be checked through, right? What you're carrying, and you couldn't be just hiding things. But my mom had tied them in her clothes, you know, just like you, I don't know, why would she do it? Because I told them that diplomas were not important, but she, for some reason, she thought that was important it was just for them that was, was was important and it was i mean yeah but you know i to be honest i felt like i left Kabul, and for me that felt like all of a sudden i was feeling um homeless and i was talking with lucy about this i went through this moment of Depression for a whole year, thinking that the city that I wrote my poetry about, uh, the people that I inspired my uh, writing, I felt like I got disconnected all of a sudden, and that's like forcefully being told that you can't visit your city because it's it's not technically your city anymore because it's ruled by a different regime. You're not welcome there. That sense of you know force displacement happened to me once more, and that really um, affected me and my writing. But meeting these young women elsewhere and meeting Afghans elsewhere, it's that sense of hope that comes back. It was amazing. In Albania, spending a few days with my family, with so many young women and Afghans who left so many things behind, so many family family members behind, sitting with them, listening to their story, and being able to talk to them, I felt like I could write about Afghanistan in a different way. You know, these people, they left the country, they continue this, their story still continues. And and obviously it's very sad, those who are still in Afghanistan, cousins and my uncle, uncle's cousins, and everyone is back in Kabul and, and so many other parts of Afghanistan. And it's hard to, to do anything for them, but to call them and listen to them, what they have to say. And, and there is always events happening, you know, that are unexpected and it's sad. And, and they, they're just so good at telling you everything. It is just, everyone is a storyteller, mm-hmm. you know? And when you hang up, you just, you're just drawn into this moment of desperation that these people are going through this. But the moment they start telling you that, that's the power, you know? If they can turn a very bad event into a, a coherent form of story, like I was walking in the street, this man came to me, he told me this, and this happened in that, and you get a sense, okay... At least they're aware of what's happening. And that power that the power that emotion that comes with that is just worth writing about. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm putting together the second book of poetry, trying to recapture the stories after the fall of Kabul. And uh, so with that I'm trying to, you know, kind of feel, you know, with this, this moment that I thought I lost my country once again. And this poetry and to revisit what happened after the fall and everything that every other stories that people are carrying with them, Afghans, elsewhere, that's going to be helpful to me as a writer, but also to those whose story is going to be told in the book. So, yeah, I think it's stories and the idea of hope always comes when you know that you are able to talk about things. And, and these young women, I think they're going to tell their stories, but... I'm sure Afghanistan will come again in the same, and their connection to that land is never can never be erased, and no one can erase it even if it takes aggressive regime like Taliban they can't they just can't make us stop feeling what we feel toward that land and toward our city so yeah, definitely it's, we're
1: gonna keep writing and and, that, and the writing is crucial that the forward of this book is written by the BBC's Yves Doucette and within the first few paragraphs she says if you're a writer you write you can't you can't do anything else and for me hearing you hearing the writers who've contributed to this book they do many other things besides and so do you but you write so that people who are here people who are in Mm -hmm. America who are in Albania can identify can empathize Mm -hmm. can understand just that little bit Mm -hmm. more and that's, the, for me, the power of this book is the simplicity of some of the stories, which yeah. belies the context of where they've been written and, and where <laughs> they're set. Um, I'm going to come to questions from the audience in just a couple of minutes. And I think we may have a roving mic just there. Yes, my volunteer is, is getting ready. Um, just as a, a final thought, maybe from Lucy for now. This isn't the only project that you're working on. This is one of a few that untold is working on. Could you tell us maybe a little bit about where you're also working and, and, and kind of what's coming up in terms of the untold projects? Yes,
2: I suppose this model, if you use a bit of jargon, which we were, did kind of work. And I'm, I mean, you might have more of a view on this, but I'm not sure what, I think it worked in the, in the sense that writer and translator were, were in, were, were working with the editor at the same time. Which is, as I said, was unusual. And you'll you'll all know it's unusual. So we were invited to to do the same model in Northeast India, where, for example, Assam, where there are separatists there and it's there's quite a lot of tension. There are also LGBTQ plus communities who are who feel very marginalised. And if you're writing in Assamese, it's it's difficult to get your work like in Afghanistan, you know, kind of published locally in your own language, let alone in translation. So we're just bringing out an anthology in January, a collection of work by Assamese writers, new Assamese writers. And we're looking into several other countries which would be next up, as as it were. But also what we're working on at the moment is a a network of Afghan writers and those in diaspora who, starting with this group, and growing this group into the, the wider diaspora, as it were. So, that, because when you leave, often when you arrive somewhere, you're almost worse off than you were to try and develop a writing career than you were at home. So, we're exploring really what, how, how useful that could be. So, using this group as a kind of test, actually, who are all keen to to try and start this off, and and hopefully that will start in January so that you have an online community exactly as, as we have now but grow it and if anyone would like to support that in a significant way we're very happy to talk to you
1: <laughs> it's an amazing legacy isn't it of this yeah. project that if, if that comes off it would be wonderful what's so so good about it really is
2: that it's it's it doesn't need untold i mean this group are going on whether we're here or not and that's that's kind of the point point. and so i think from our point of view that's that shows, hopefully, that it's been useful and money well spent.
1: Yeah, absolutely. OK, if you have any questions, this is your opportunity. There's, there's a person in the second row just there and then a person just at the front. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how the families of the writers felt about what they were up to, because it may or may not have been something that they understood or supported, mm-hmm. and also the impact of some of the writers having to felt they had to leave and how the families felt about that, because it must have impacted on both both parties, the writer and the family. Mm.
3: Well, I wish I, I had um, in-person conversation with those writers, but I'm not really sure. But usually the writers that are writing, they seem to come from a very supportive family, because um, you can tell the kind of story they're writing, and the, I don't know the kind of space you can imagine you could tell that this, this writer is not hiding her skill. If anything, she's encouraged to write. And I mean, as an Afghan myself, coming from a very supportive Afghan family, we, you know, when Lucy says that they receive about 120 entries for this project, that says a lot. After, after 9-11, that Afghanistan fell, that we became free again, everyone was a writer already. Everyone wanted to be a poet because... Poetry, literature—it runs in the family. It runs in the culture of Afghanistan, and it's only obviously selected group of people who didn't, never allowed literature enter their household, or that their women go pursue education or anything. We you can tell what kind of group are those, but there are a lot of people that read poetry and read all sorts of literary works, even during the Taliban period and afterwards. Everyone wanted to become a writer. And for women especially, that was a way for them to live a different kind of life in their mind and the most peaceful, the most beautiful life that they could ever. Any sort of writing or any kind of subject really allowed them to experience that. And there was, I think, I don't know about this specific 18 writers, but writing was never prohibited during those times for Afghans. And it's it's very interesting. There is a very interesting documentary on love crimes of Kabul. I don't know if you ever watched it. This is a documentary about the, the only women's prison, prison in Kabul where they basically put women who have gone scenes as of you know, having sexual relations with any men before marriage and all those things. And if you see, there are characters that... There are women who are writing poetry because they just embodies a poetic persona and that is in the culture and it's it's I don't know how to say it but you know as uh, coming from that culture I know the significance of that seeing yourself as a writer and imagining your space and your private way of thinking about the world and and I I don't yeah, I don't, if you know about any stories in particular.
2: Yes, that, so a couple of examples. So Mariam, her sister sent in her story originally because Mariam said, I'm not, I'm not sending that, uh, any of my work in. She uh, had, has been, had been writing for about 10 years. She's in her mid-20s now. And her sister said, you're good, I'm going to send this in and she's got two stories of the beginning the first and last story she's the strongest writer I would say in the group and so in a way her family was giving her the confidence in that way Maliha is, is comes from a rural area she wrote her story by hand asked her brother if he would photograph it and somehow get it email it to us and so in a way he supported her in that way I think she said that he he thought it was a bit of a joke you know it was never um thought that would happen so essentially at the beginning I think most people had family as Farhan said who were vaguely supportive the crunch came when we had to say "Are you going to use your real names uh post Mm. the fall of Kabul Mm. and that's when the that's when you really saw the true colors Mm. so Maliha's family absolutely didn't want were terrified of her using her real name and the same so if the more rural writers Mm -hmm. tended to be less matured and tended to be nervous of that and that's where the families came in and so obviously we respected that and I was actually urging everyone to have a pen name anyway because of Mm -hmm. untold having the responsibility but we went with the writers wishes so about about half the names in here are not true real names and they tend that tended to be family concerns just one, one, more, mm. one more thing,
3: you know, when, even if the families try to, you know, ask for the last name to disappear or something, it only has to do because the society, you know, the kind of society that lives around those family could be a little too conservative. Mm. So for the sake of being safe, they would do it. But internally, they're very supportive. I, I mm. couldn't publish my poetry, I know, until two years ago. Just because of that fear, my family were very well educated. My father is an engineer. His work with Americans and Germans, and it's it, His whole world has been all about, you know, women having the same sort of liberty as any man, and all those things. But for me to be to put my words out there I always felt dangerous. You know, I always kept writing poetry for the past ten years, but could never share it um, on social media or anything. And when the book came out last year in July. And then a year later, a, week, a month after that, Kabul fell. I was terrified because they could Google me, find something. I had to shut down all my social media accounts, no Facebook, Instagram or Twitter, just because of that. Because I didn't want my family to be in a
2: position where they they are in danger because of me. And I think
3: a lot of that goes with yeah. that idea. Yeah,
2: we had to keep balancing if one writer... I mean, so we had people who were very defiant and who had left... Who, were, who said you no know, we must have our names and we must all talk about it and everything and so we've had to that all the time and still now we're balancing those that are still there where they are what ethnic group they're from yes. where their families might have been associated with everything is by association the whole time and on it goes all the time
1: thank you uh, I think there was a question just here yes Uh, You have just partly answered my question, but uh, I was going to ask, when the Taliban took over and you had to remove all traces of the writers from the airwaves, the internet and so on, uh, what would have happened
2: if you'd left them there? Would they be sought out? Would they be punished? And if
1: so, would it be because they were women or because they were writers or both?
3: Yeah, um... I think I'm trying to imagine myself in that scenario, and any writer I think would feel the same coming from <coughs> Afghanistan. I think it's just um, both, really. It's just being a writer, and then a woman, and um, and then also the West is reading you. The West is liking your work, and a good example of that goes to this poet Nadia Anjuman. I don't know if you know of her. She used to write poetry during the first time when Taliban were ruling. And as soon as uh, the the Americans took over Afghanistan, she became very well-known. Her two book of poetry uh, was uh, published and she became very well-known. And all of a sudden she was killed by the husband thinking that she was just Got too overexposed in public, and her poetry was read and she was dangerous. And I mention her in my book. Two of the poems are dedicated to her because that is a, a, a I mean, she was basically a very well-known poet of Herod, and that's why um, she was targeted. But with this type of information, they definitely, you know, it's the other thing we have to learn is that. You know, when the Taliban took over, it doesn't mean that one group came and they took the control. It's not that, it's also because it's an ideology, right? A family member not liking your way of life, they can, you know, turn against you. And this is what the fear is. A lot of the people, a lot of the righteous whose names are out there, they fear that type of, you know, enemy within the house that, you know, they made it, it made it possible for the people to take revenge or do something, and and that's the case, I think, and and also, it's so easy to come to find one on you know by googling them, and I don't know, it's just like ever overexposure was always a dangerous thing, especially if you're a, a writer, a woman writer. So I, that's. Would be my best answer, in this and also a lot
2: of these, well, several of these women were, were doing women's work for women's rights groups, or were kind of not high level, but sort of low level activism. You say they were obvious target because they were they were advocating what was being crushed, if you like. So some were more at risk than others, or worked for BBC, or yeah. you know, as a day job, or whatever it might be.
5: And what could happen to them? And would they be thrown in, in prison or...? Oh,
2: you know more about this. At worst, I mean, tortured. Right. Kill, I mean, possibly killed. I mean, the reality, it's real, you know. Yeah. It's it's real. It's, at worst, death. At best, yeah, sort of harassed. I mean, there's been a spate recently of... You'll know more about this than me, Puanha, but, you know, people's phones being... I was talking to, to yeah. the group the other day and the th- women's phones being snatched. So the fact that we've now they've now been able to get laptops is quite good because they can hide them at home whereas if you're on the street and your phone's snatched from you just out of harassment then you suddenly lost all everything if it was on there
1: well and that phone is key to that woman's only independence, which yeah. is to be able to communicate and to be able to write mm-hmm. yeah. so it's it's it's, it's central symbolic it's in yeah way. it's more than just yeah. the item isn't it yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, any more questions thank you. thank you any more questions from the audience we've got time for one more there's a question right up at the back second from the back
5: Thank you
3: I wonder if you could touch on the relationships of the writer and the, the feedback processes with the editor and translator and how how this all all evolved and how the these
2: stories evolved through that please are you a writer <laughs>
1: No, okay. <laughs> that's, that's an unusual question from if a you, non-writer, if that's why.
2: If you are a writer, then you'll know that it's a joyful experience if you find an editor who you like and get on with and mm-hmm. who understands what you're trying to mm-hmm. say, and that's a really valuable relationship, and it's a kind of bridge towards publication. So what we were trying to create is, is a meeting with, with an editor who the writer's got to know. There were two editors throughout each of the editorial processes, and so it was how it works anyway, which is an editor would read the work, feedback in the sense of, it's not feedback really, it's a conversation about different in each case, because the relationship's different in each case, about what the writer might think about in, for, it's, for her next draft of the story. I and mean, these are new writers. So the, these are people who've never worked with an editor before or have never rewritten anything before on the whole. Some are more experienced than others, but, but some had, had no experience of that. So some of these stories went, well, uh, this is seventh draft. Mm. At some of them, it's three, but it's minimum three. Uh, it might even be more than seven, one particular one. <laughs> and so it was a conversation many times with translator, and writer about what the writer's trying to say, how they're saying it, how structurally they may shift the story to make it read better. And it wasn't about making it for Western readers. It was about very basic craft. You can correct me if I'm wrong because I've got it in. That we're very aware of, there are gatekeepers everywhere, but we, this is, was not about trying to create something for an international market. It was actually, originally, this was going to be published in Dari and Pashto, but unfortunately, for obvious reasons, it hasn't been so it was a traditional. I'm not explaining it very well. Somebody else who is a writer can explain it better <laughs> than me. But the feedback was about making the story stronger and enabling the writer to say what they wanted to say through the fiction
1: that they were writing. It's not an unusual process for any writer who's working in translation. No, it is
2: completely.
1: It's common. just the setup here yeah. and, and, and the context. Well, it's not an
2: unusual process for people writing not in translation. No, that's true. With I the editor, mean, it's, it's a normal process. Yeah. But it would be unusual for somebody to write and be published in, in a book form with no editor yes, involved. absolutely. Rather old yeah. and possibly foolhardy.
1: <laughs> Thank you. We've nearly run out of time. Thank you both, Lucy and Pawana. is actually part of an event tomorrow as well. Off the top of my head, it's at 2pm tomorrow. Uh, it's called Writing from a War Zone and uh, we've got writers who are contributing who are from Afghanistan and Ukraine. And I've forgotten the last one, Jonathan. Right. Thank you. So that's taking place tomorrow. Purwana, I'm springing this slightly on you, so I hope that's okay. But I wonder if you might finish us off by reading one of the poems from your oh, book. Please. Can I? Can please it's do. It's... Yeah.
3: <laughs> right. I think I'm going to read the final poem in the book, which seems to really close the collection in a nice way, but also very relevant to this event. In search of a woman. One As morning melody breaks, the city breathes in in the middle of some dry dust. Street vendors start by the river, selling all kinds of drugs for the city. This opaque people smoking hashish. It's once inky blue river twisted through the city. It is now a broken river. It's banks darkened by trash of all kinds. Two. Once after midday prayers, women headed to the Sidis river to wash their clothes, rubbing and pounding them on its stones. Crossing the blue carpet of the river, the sky was in the turquoise water, a mirror, an immortal soul of the city. Three, now after midday, this riverbank is home for this opic people. As the Maghrib evening sunset fades out, These men head to the mosques. Four, I search in the streets of Kabul for a woman. In a state of writing poetry, I search for her, inside and outside each room. Where could she be at this time of the day? Five, Kabul now sleeps. From the window of my house, I remain in a room filled with women and children the adore of their clothes, the smell of the children, over and over the door is locked. Looking for a transcendence to emerge or a memory to reside, each day is the same day. I continue to write a poem. Thank you.
1: Thank you both. It's a wonderful book and I'm very grateful that you were here. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BHamLitFest. All information about the festival and upcoming events can be found on our website www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. The Birmingham Lit First Presents podcast is produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for writing West Midlands.